Good morning. I want to thank you for inviting me back. And I want to thank everybody for being patient with me over, the, over these last couple of weeks, uh, just as I struggle to remember names. So if I have to ask you four or five times to remind me what your name is again, um, I just appreciate that you guys are being so patient with me. I'm working hard on it. Uh, probably contrary to some of the reports that you've heard, I'm pretty weak-minded, and so it takes me a lot of, a lot of time to, uh, to memorize and, and to learn things. And uh, I've been studying the church directory diligently, but um, still, uh, still struggle with a few names. So thank you for being patient with me. First Corinthians 12. I grew up in a basketball family. That was the only sport we knew as kids. That's, that's what defined our family. And uh, my family was pretty good at basketball. I have two older brothers. The one you know, Michael, who you support as a missionary in Ireland. He was, he was good. Uh, but Matt, the middle brother, was amazing. Okay? Matt was uh, Mr. Basketball in the state of Utah in 2002. He went on to play Division I basketball for Weber State University. Uh, he even coached at the college level, NCCAA college level. Now, my basketball career never really got off the runway. I, I peaked in the sixth grade. And my shining moment on the court was a really, um, just an amazing feat of athleticism where it was a, it was a free throw and, you know, I'm, I'm there kind of lined up, ready to get the rebound. Well, they missed it. And just in a moment of, of just athleticism and brilliance, I boxed everyone out and I pulled down that rebound and I put it right back up and it just swished the bottom of the net. And then I remembered, man, it really matters what side of the court you're on. Because you can actually end up with negative points on a statistic. And I ended up scoring for the wrong team. You know, in retrospect, I realize that the deepest level of my basketball incompetence, I don't think was purely athleticism. I think it was a little bit of athleticism, but I don't think it was purely athleticism. I think it was a little bit of, I, I, it was mental I didn't understand the game. My brother, you know, he would watch these games and he would say, oh, that was a bad pass or that was a, you know, that was, that was a good assist or whatever. And I, I never knew what was good and bad. I just thought, well, I passed last time. I'll shoot this time. I didn't, I didn't have a mind for how the game was supposed to operate and how I was supposed to fit and function in the context of this organization called a team. And it's really the team aspect of basketball which makes it so compelling. It's the team aspect of any sport which makes it so compelling. That's why typically team sports rate so much higher in, in television ratings than individual sports, right? Football and soccer and basketball and baseball, they all get higher ratings. And I think it's because there's something deep in the human experience. There's something deep in the human heart where we love witnessing and being a part of and experiencing Something that's shared between a lot of people. We love being a part of a shared experience. We want to be in a team, in a community. Something that's harmonious and synchronous and beautiful where every part is working together. Every part is doing its job and everything fits just right. We all want to be part of that something that's bigger than ourselves. We want to be part of a flourishing human community. But the only problem is we can't ever find one. Right? Forget the team. 
We can't even get our marriages to work out the way that we want to. And that's just two people, let alone our families or our schools or our churches or our businesses or our cities or our country. But 1 Corinthians 12, this passage, this God-breathed passage that we just read, shows us that this type of experience that I'm describing, this harmonious, flourishing community, is exactly what God is in the business of creating and making and sustaining. That the local church is meant to fill a void in the human heart a craving for a community of love where all the parts work together and create something amazing and something beautiful. Now, before we jump into this passage, let me do a little bit of housekeeping. First off, if, you, if you're not a Christian and you're visiting this morning, if you don't identify as a Christian, uh, this, this passage is a little bit of insider baseball. Okay, this, this passage is written by the Apostle Paul to those who are already part of the church, those who are already in the church. But I actually think that's enormously helpful for you. Right? The best way to get a sense of what people really believe is to uh, listen in on their conversation that they have at the family dinner table. This is a great way for you to explore Christianity. And I know that as I've talked to a lot of uh, people who don't identify as a Christian, you know, one of the main questions that that uh, people who are exploring Christianity have is, well, you know, Jesus seems like this really compelling character, but what about the church? What, what, what do we do with, with that? What's that all about? Especially since the church doesn't seem to have the sterling character that Jesus does when I read the Gospels. So I hope this gives you an inside look into what Jesus accomplished what Jesus is in the business of doing, not only what he did in the past, but what Jesus is doing right now in building this thing that the Bible calls the church. And for those of you who are members of Heritage, I want to make my aim in this sermon very clear. So, I just want to, so I'm just going to say it outright. It makes it easy. In this passage, Paul and me... I'm, we're not aiming to convince you that every Christian should be a member of a local church. Most of you know that. It's why you're a member. My aim in this sermon, I think Paul's aim in this passage, is to so entice your affections for what the local church is and what it should be that me, membership becomes more than just a name on a piece of paper. More than just your religious and spiritual corollary to, to your Costco membership. That it's something fundamentally different. That membership in the Bible is actually a living, breathing, animating force in your life that creates love for other people. Namely, the people who are sitting on your right and on your left and behind you and in front of you. That's what this passage is about. So, brothers and sisters, I think as I've been at Heritage in the last couple of months, well, I guess two months. There's a lot of good at Heritage, right? There's just a lot of really good stuff happening. Right? And I'm talking about church structure stuff, right? Institutionally, there's just a lot of really good, right, healthy church structure. Remember, without structure, you're not anything. But that doesn't mean structure is everything. You need structure 
You need right structure. The Bible implements and prescribes specific structure in a church. But those structures exist for a reason. And the reason that those things exist is to cultivate patterns of love and commitment and service that could not exist without those structures. Membership and discipline and elders and deacons, all of those elements, all those institutional elements of the church are like a skeleton. You need a skeleton. You need a skeleton, but skeletons in and of themselves don't have any life. Skeletons in and of themselves don't stand up and walk. Skeletons make life possible because they provide a place where tissue and muscle can grow and thrive and exercise so that the flesh and blood of the body gets strong and healthy. That's why you have a skeleton. So hear me clearly. This is not a sermon about having right church practices. Ultimately, you need that. This is a sermon about having right hearts. And my hope is that whatever good, right, robust theology may be embedded in the institutional structure of Heritage Baptist Church would be commended to people in this community, to other churches, not just because it's by the book, but because it, it cultivates love for one another in our church, which is evident for others to see. So typically the way that I like to cover a passage is slide it under the microscope and pick it apart piece by piece. And this sermon is going to be a little bit different. Okay, and we're not going to be looking at it under a microscope. More we're going to be flying overhead and taking aerial shots at 30,000 feet. I want to uncover in this passage Not so much what Paul is saying about spiritual gifts, but the theology and the assumptions behind what he's saying to the Corinthians. So there's a lot in this chapter, but we're just going to highlight three different things. Okay, three different aerial shots, landscape shots. Number one, sharing in the same spirit. Number two, receiving different gifts. And number three, being one body. So let's look at number one, sharing the same spirit. Verses two to three. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in The Holy Spirit. These verses are crucial because these verses give the theological and the practical foundation for everything that follows in this passage about spiritual gifts and about life in the body of Christ. Paul describes our condition as one of enslavement to idols. You notice that language? We were led astray. And it doesn't matter if you were converted at five or at 55 or at 95 or at 555. That was you. That was me. We were all enslaved to idols. And that obviously doesn't mean, you know, just something like a totem pole. It could be anything. Anything can be an idol. Anything that we treasure or value or want or pursue or save up money for more than God. And we all You, me, everyone in this room, we were all enslaved to them. So how did we get out? Verse 3. 
verse 3 happens. It's not that you woke up one day and thought, boy, I really got to get my act together. These, these idols are really ruining my life. That's not how it happened. The Holy Spirit rushed into your heart with hurricane-like gospel power. And now the Holy Spirit being in you and you being in the Holy Spirit, you begin to say crazy things like, Jesus is Lord, not me. Jesus is ultimate, not money. Jesus makes the decisions here, not me. He is the authority. Now notice the very next sentence, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts. <laughs> what? <laughs> Where did that come from? That, like I remember reading this you know, for the first time when I was studying it, and that just feels like whiplash. You're talking about the Holy Spirit. You're talking about the work that he's doing and freeing us from idols. And then Paul so seamlessly seems to transition from being saved by God to being gifted by God. There are varieties of service. Well, what's Paul doing? What's the logic between three and four? Well, I think there are a number of things, but if I could just distill it down to maybe it's most basic elements. I think what Paul is saying is that the same spirit who gives us all the same love for Jesus is the same spirit who gives us all different gifts to serve others saved by Jesus. You cannot separate the work of the Spirit causing a person to believe in Jesus and the work of the Spirit that causes a person to want to serve Jesus. It's the same work by the same Spirit. And that's why Paul puts them together. And then Paul unravels this point in the next paragraph in verses 4 to 6. And he takes this idea, this that we're talking about being gifted by God with the spirit from a two-dimensional picture to a three-dimensional picture. Here's what I mean. Look at verse four. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Paul moves from showing how God saves us to how God equips us and gifts us to serve his people. And the idea here is clear, right? This isn't complicated exposition. God has gifted you. His spirit has indwelt you to serve in the church. Now, as I make that statement, we've, we have to hear it with the right accent. God has gifted you. The point is not, wow. I'm so gifted. I must be so wonderful, right? I'm God's special snowflake. The point is, wow, I'm so gifted. He must be so wonderful. Gifts reflect on the giver. And notice this is in the passage. That isn't just a clever turn of phrase I made up. Like that's there in the Bible. Verse four, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Verse five, varieties of service, but the same Lord, the typical word used for the son, for Jesus. Verse six, varieties of activities, but the same God, the typical word used for the father. So notice the tremendous accent that you have on God, God, the father and the Lord, the son and the spirit all engaged in the life of a local church to empower believers in love for one another. In other words, this is not small. This is not small. If, if, if your view of church is just, you know, heading on Sunday morning to a place where you can get a little spiritual pick-me-up for the rest of the week, that is not what is happening here. 
That is not what Jesus and the triune God are creating at this moment. Nothing less than the power of the entire Trinity is animating true believers in the context of a local church for causes of love that extend the gospel in people's lives in the church and outside of the church and then display the gospel to the world. Friends, just reflect on that for a moment. The same God, the same God, the Father, who in love predestined you from all eternity to adoption and salvation, and the same Son, who 2,000 years ago walked on the dusty streets of Jerusalem, born under the law, and worked out your righteousness, and then suffered the wrath of God in your place on a cross, and then rose again from the dead, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, And then the same spirit who came and breathed life into your dead soul and took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh and put new affections for Jesus in you and for righteousness. That is the same triune God with the same power now at work in this church, empowering you for the self-crucifying causes of love for one another. This one God in all of its triune glory seen here. So what's the application of this? Brothers and sisters, do you see why submitting your life to the loving care and to the discipline of other believers in a church isn't just right, but it's good. It's beautiful. That living a life disconnected from the covenant community of a church essentially disconnects you from experiencing the life and the grace and the power of the triune God that is only known in the committed context of service and fellowship and acceptance in a local church. Church membership is so much more than having your name on a roll. Paul is inviting you here. He's inviting me here to put hands and feet and heart on that membership granted an authority from the Lord Jesus himself, whereby you possess the keys of the kingdom to oversee one another's membership in the kingdom that we come to know and love and see our triune God more and more as we serve and are served by the people God has given us in this church. And friends, I know that is a crazy statement because it's not what you feel when you walk in those doors on a Sunday morning. You don't see triune glory. I don't see triune glory. You know what we see? That guy who's going to corner us after church and dump a lot of needs and requests on us. We see that brother who, no matter how many times we talk to him about this, no matter how many times we're patient, he sins against us the same way week after week, year after year. We see that sister who called you out for that sin one time in a way that was totally inappropriate. You enter those doors and see potentially a sea of people that frankly, over years and years of time, just might rub you the wrong way. And friends, all of those things are true. We're not denying any of those realities, and neither is Paul. But what Paul is saying is that you cannot believe the lie of your hurt feelings 
or your failed social interactions in this church. Because this church, with all of its frustrations and faults and failures and brokenness, is the unique and only context where God has chosen to pour out the full array of his gifts and the full array of his grace. And that means we come to know and love and fellowship with God most fully only in the commitment that we have to the lives and to the fellowship and to the care of a church community, even in one as broken as this one. And in that community, we come to experience God's grace given not just to me and not just to you, but to an entire congregation of brothers and sisters that the Lord has given you. It's the multiplication of grace by the multiplication of individuals that are here in this community. That's point number one, sharing the same spirit. Point number two, receiving different gifts. Notice verse seven. To each is given. Now, what would you expect him to say? Right? He's been talking about spiritual gifts. You would expect him to say, to each is given a spiritual gift. But that's not what he says. He says, to each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. A manifestation of the spirit. Paul says that the exercise of service of your gift, gifts, plural, probably, in the context of a church it ain't just doing stuff. Paul says that when you serve and love and exercise these gifts, nothing less than a supernatural display or a manifestation of the spirit is happening. Paul calls your gift a manifestation of the spirit and the manifestation of the spirit is the gift. They're the same thing for Paul. And then Paul goes on to list the different types of gifts, the different ways we manifest the spirit with wisdom and knowledge and faith and distinguishing between the spirits. All of these things are empowered by the spirit. God sovereignly portions all of this out to everyone in the church, verse 11. And why is it that we are given this manifestation of the spirit? Notice the purpose clause in verse 7. I love purpose clauses in the Bible. <laughs> Tells you why he's saying something to you. For, you're given a manifestation of the Spirit, for, for the purpose of the common, or you might say congregational, good. God saves you, and he gives you gifts, and those gifts are meant to be used for the benefit of others, for a common congregational benefit. So this prompts me to ask a very basic question of Paul, okay? It's Christianity 101 right here. Paul? How do I glorify God with my life? Let me rephrase that question. How do I put God on display in my life? Let me rephrase that question. Paul, how do I manifest the spirit? And Paul says that the way you put God on display, the way you, quote, manifest the spirit, is by caring for and loving others in the context of your church, specifically in the ways that he's gifted you. So do you want to glorify God? Serve him by serving others in the way that he empowers you. And that's what puts God on display. So brothers and sisters, maybe some of you are here this morning and thinking, gosh, I just feel really spiritually dry. How do I get a deeper, richer relationship with God? More communion? Why don't I feel more of God's presence? Why does Christianity just seem so bland to me? Well, I want to submit that 
the answer might be in this passage. The first answer might be that verse 3 never happened to you. You might not be born again. You might still be enslaved to idols. That maybe you've never repented of your sin and come to Jesus. And it, and that's what you need ultimately. It's what all of us need ultimately. Is a relationship with God through Christ. Which doesn't demand that we do a bunch of religious stuff. It means that we come to Christ in repentance and faith. And embrace him. And the sacrifice that he made for us and his resurrection from the dead. That's what all of us ultimately need. But if you are a Christian already, if you see the, the work of the Spirit in your life, maybe not to the degree that you want it to be, for none of us it's to the degree that we want it to be, but, but if you see the Spirit at work in your life and you see the fruit of the Spirit and you're trusting in Jesus and you're wondering why your relationship with God feels so dry and why you think your life just doesn't glorify God the way that you want it to, friend, the answer might reside in a lack of a deep, rich commitment to serving your brothers and sisters in the context of this local church. There may be a correlation between those two things. And if you want to see more of the glory of God in your life and in the lives of others, you manifest, put on display the spirit by employing your gifts in love for others. Right. And that sounds great right now. Right. When we're kind of just sitting here under this sermon and we're feeling encouraged and we want to go manifest the spirit and we want to go love and serve our brothers. Until you actually go out and start doing it. Right? Because everyone here, I'm sure, spends lots of time with people. And friends, there's nothing glorious about it. Right? We're grumpy. We're awkward. All of us are sometimes a little irritating to the people that are around us. But brothers and sisters, you manifest the spirit, not in spite of those things, but because of those things. It's in the fire of relating to other sinners that makes this whole enterprise so filled with the glory of God. Because in your patient service to people who are so unlike you in age and in interest and in personality and in race and in education, you reflect a savior who, though so unlike you, served you and died for you, even when you were to him, not just some type of relational annoyance, but a rebel. And when you manifest the spirit, what spirit are you putting on display? It's the spirit of Christ. Which means that you show the spirit of Christ when you endure the suffering of engaging with and loving other sinners who will even unintentionally hurt you while you're trying to do good for them. Brothers and sisters, here's another way this might apply to us. Don't buy into the lie that the truly amazing, God-glorifying life, the life well-lived, is the life with all the bells and whistles attached to it. Right? Oh, man, look at that guy and how he glorifies God and he speaks at all these big conferences and everybody wants him to speak and he's this big guru and he's got all these book deals. Right? And I do this Thursday morning Bible study and sometimes nobody even shows up to it. Right? Or you're the mom and, and, and you look at 
you know, some other woman in the church, and she has like 10 kids, and she's adopted 40 others, and like the family's amazing, and everybody wants her counsel. And you're like, oh, I got two kids, and I can barely do devotionals. Brothers and sisters, God isn't most glorified in things that you can quantify. That is imperative for us to remember. And the gifts of the Spirit are not ministry activities that neatly categorize into all the official ministries of Heritage Baptist Church. You know where God is most glorified? God said His Spirit is manifested in the regular ordinary, disciplined service of a congregation of people that employs all of the different gifts that the Lord has sprinkled out over them. Brothers and sisters, we are deficient in the way that we magnify Christ without one another. God is most glorified in us when we engage week in and week out and day in and day out in the life of this local congregation. God is glorified by the whole church when we serve in the nursery or invite brothers and sisters over to your home or give counsel to that sister who frankly requires a little more attention than you think you have to give or when you encourage a brother to continue being faithful to his wife or when you pray through a page of the church directory every night or when you show up on Sunday morning or in the 10,000 other possible ways you exercise your gifts in the congregation here, let me, let me put it in language that might land with some of you. What I'm saying is this. God is most glorified in us when we, as a congregation, are most satisfied in him. All right, now I'm speaking your language for some of you. How about this one? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him in the company of his people forever. God displays the fullness of Christ's glory, not in individual persons, but in a corporate people who in regular, ordinary, everyday, daily acts of love manifest the Spirit. Point number three, being one body. Verse 12, for just as the body has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Paul here describes the local church as a body. Though we are all many members with diversity of backgrounds and gifts and interests, yet together we compose one body. Paul's not exhorting the Corinthians to become something they're not, notice. He's trying to help them preserve what they already are. They already are one body by virtue of the fact that God has placed them together. By virtue of the fact that when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's not just a symbol of our unity, but it in some way actually creates this unity that we have with one another. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And brothers and sisters, we are so far removed culturally from that statement that I don't feel like it lands on us in the way that Paul intended it to. And let me see if I can just kind of reshape the analogies Paul is using here in a way that kind of helps us get it in, in the way that I think Paul intended it. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. 
Muslims and Jews coming to Christ and being baptized in one body. Al-Qaeda soldiers and American Marines coming to Christ and being baptized into one body. Prostitutes and homeschool moms coming to Christ and being baptized into one body. And all drinking of the same spirit. And how is that possible? Because the thing that makes us one people and one body is not shared experiences and shared interests and shared hobbies and shared backgrounds and shared family heritage and shared education level or shared economic status. Paul says the thing, or maybe better, the person that makes us one body is the spirit. And he uses two images in verse 13 to describe that. In one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And then number two, we were all made to drink of one spirit. That true unity for the people of God doesn't come from anything that we share with one another, except the fact that we all share the spirit. That what unites us is the fact that someone has done something, the same thing, to every single one of us. That the Spirit takes all these different people with their different interests and gives them ultimate affection for Jesus and ultimate commitment to the mission of Jesus, such that they now become one. What unites the people of God is a shared Savior and a shared mission and a shared salvation, which then goes public, I would submit. In the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper and in the congregation of, of, of the local church. What I love about these verses is that we don't have to, I, I don't, this is easy to preach, right? Because I don't have to come up with an illustration, right? It is, it, it is its own illustration. Paul, Paul made his own illustration. This idea of a body. Look at how he develops this in the following verses. Verse 15. If the foot says, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. In other words, self-pity, because I didn't get my fantasy ministry. I didn't get my dream gift. Or because you think you don't fit with whatever stereotype you have of the typical church member. Or because you don't match the typical age or the typical interests or any other typical thing. Paul says is no excuse from disengaging from the life of the church. God didn't give you every gift. He gave us a tiny small gift because he purposed to glorify himself. Not just in you as an individual, but in you as a part of a corporate people. Look at verse 22. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. In other words, pride, because you did get your fantasy ministry, or you did get your dream gift, is no excuse from disengaging from the life of the church. And notice how strong Paul's language is here. You speak like this, that if you're going to live in a way that honors Christ, we need, that's the language he uses, we need the loving care and oversight and service of our brothers and sisters in this church. Verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. 
And notice again, the assumption is not that we should be one body. Paul says that we are one body. This is already a reality. And you cannot opt out without massively damaging yourself or other parts of the body. We are united. And a failure to push into that reality is essentially like just hitting the self-destruct button on your spiritual life. So, brothers and sisters, let me, let me leave you with two kind of big reflections on this passage and how it might apply here at Heritage Baptist Church. Number one, learn to distinguish between a personal relationship with God and a private relationship with God. The glory of the gospel is that through Jesus Christ and through what he did on the cross and in his resurrection, we have a personal relationship with God, but it is not a private relationship. God removes the barriers that exist between us and him, and he invites us into the relationship, but then he designs this salvation in such a way that it includes other people into this relationship that we have with him. He puts us into relationship with himself, and then he puts us into relationship with others, and then he gives those others, the local church, authority over that person's life to oversee their membership in the kingdom and to cultivate and encourage the relationship that they have with God through Christ. And he, he doesn't just give us generic friendships. He gives us a church, an institution, believers who've covenanted to one another, who are committed to one another, who are under the oversight of pastors, who would intentionally disciple and discipline one another to see that each member of the body grows in Christ's likeness. And that discipling and that discipline, it happens on Sunday morning and in the gatherings of the church. Those things are central but it also happens day to day, hour by hour, throughout the week in the life of the congregation. And we as a congregation are meant to encourage and equip one another all the time, day after day, in the life of this church. Number two, if all of this is true, if all of this is true, right? And if you get nothing else from the sermon, just just get this, right? You just got 30 seconds. Okay? You just lock in for these 30 seconds. If this is true, then the ultimate pursuit of your life as a Christian should not be your individual maturity only, but the corporate maturity of your church. If God makes himself known most fully in a corporate people, and if only together, are we the body of Christ? And if you're part of that body, then your aim should be the health of the whole body and not just your personal maturity. Your life is so interwoven and intertwined with these people that you cannot separate your health from theirs. You know, what if someone with rampant flesh-eating bacteria just, you know, all over his body. Came up to you and was like, look at these feet. <laughs> Doctor said, I have the feet of a 22-year-old. <laughs> be like, what are you talking about, man? That bacteria is going to eat your whole body alive. Don't talk about your feet. That's crazy. <laughs> Friends, we act in that way. When we prioritize 
our personal maturity and never think about the corporate maturity of this congregation. We should pursue the health of the whole body as an act of love for them and out of a desire to see our own souls grow in the love of God. And how do we do that? By having meals with each other, by doing evangelism together, by speaking the word of God into each other's lives, by giving one another critical feedback, by encouraging one another and counseling one another and serving one another in whatever small, tiny, seemingly insignificant way that the Lord has gifted you in the way that the Lord has enabled you to manifest the spirit. That's what promotes your health. And it's also what promotes the health of the whole church. So brothers and sisters in playing our small part in building up a mature and healthy of body, a mature and a healthy body of Christians. That, that is how you glorify God with your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for saving us. Thank you for sending your spirit to us and redeeming us from sin so that we can from the heart say Jesus is Lord. And Father, I thank you for this congregation of believers and I pray that they would be faithful to you, that they would all manifest the spirit to one another for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.